Are you ready for some nosy bitches? Because this is about to get explicit. Hey, bitches. Hey, friends. Hey, Carla. Hey, Michael. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good this week. You know, last week it felt, I think not everybody knows, but I had dental issues last week. Like a part of your tooth literally came out while you were chewing taffy. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm definitely feeling a little bit better than I was last week. Um, But I spent the weekend in Georgia with my daughter. You had that convention. How was it? Yeah, it was a great convention. We got to see all the vampire diaries. So... Ugh, Ian Somerhalder. (laughs) Listen, both of them, Paul Wesley, Daniel Gillies, all of the things. Shared some pictures on our socials of fun times. It was a good time. How are you this week? I'm well. I'm well. It's been... uh, We are going to apologize for our delay in posting our last episode. So part of being part-time podcasters where we both have very crazy day jobs is that sometimes dealing with technology means that things are delayed a couple of days. So we had quite the issues. Other than that, it's been a good productive week. We're sitting here tonight with some Brothers Bond bourbon from your convention. Yes. Shameless plug there. We've got puppies next to us. We can hear chickens in the next room. It's good to be here with you. It's like a wonderful little farmhouse here. We're slowly getting it that way. You know, it's funny though about having our podcast posted late meant that we are still very entrenched in this Lacey Peterson case. I mean, you should have heard us earlier today. We were reviewing the previous episode before we posted. What just an insane case that just evokes so many emotions for so many different people. It was everywhere at the time. I keep going back and forth. Sometimes I'm really indignant and he is guilty. He did this. Look at all of the things. And then other times I will literally point out, well, this is how he might do it. I think earlier today I'm like 60-40. Like 60% he did it, 40% he didn't do it. But what that means is that even if I feel like he's guilty, I still couldn't have convicted him in a court of law, right? Because that's what it comes down to, is could I have stood in front of a court of law if I were on that jury and say, yes, for a fact, he did it. I don't think I could do it, not believing 40% of me thinks he might be innocent. I may be even further on the I'm not sure that Scott's guilty train. Maybe only a little bit, though. I think I'm like 70-30. What I will say, everything that you said, spot on. I don't know that I could convict him as a juror. But they didn't just convict him. They also sentenced him to death in California at part of the original trial, which just blows my mind. That tells me these people not only in the moment felt very sure that he did it, but they felt really, really strongly about it. If you haven't listened to episode one, the Lacey Peterson case, please go back and listen to it because we tried to, for the most part, without emotion, Though there's some in there, but we really try to lay out the facts. There are a lot of rumors. There are a lot of misgivings in this case. And so we did try to lay it out. And really for this episode, we want to talk about the different things. Maybe he did do it. Maybe he didn't do it and focus more on that instead of the facts of what actually happened leading into her disappearance. And then of course her eventual murder and them finding her body. That's right. We're going to tease out a few aspects of this case that we found particularly intriguing and try to talk about it for a few minutes from the stance of what if you believe the 
prosecution where they think that Scott absolutely did it. They built their case around the idea that he murdered his wife and unborn son, later dumped them in the San Francisco Bay. And then what if we took it from the stance of the defense who says, this is all circumstantial. We're not trying to say that our client deserves a husband or father of the year award, but a murderer he is not. So I'm hoping we can break that down for you. Like Carla said, go back and listen to episode one of this case if you haven't done so already. Also, like, subscribe, do all the things. Help us out, as we always say, with the algorithm gods. And if you have ideas for future cases, hit us up on our social at NosyBees, or you can, of course, email us at nosybeesforlife at gmail.com. That's N-O-S-E-Y, the number four, L-I-F-E at gmail.com. We gave credit to Lisa in the first episode, but I'll say it again. Like, this was early on, I think we had literally just created our Instagram account that one of our listeners messaged us and was like, hey, let's hear about the Lacey Peterson case. So please do, if you have a case that you want to hear our unsolicited feedback, let us know. We are officially giving you permission to slide into our DMs. Please, bitches, slide into those DMs. This case, again, we want to hit on a couple of aspects of this that make us just go, huh, could it be this or could it be this? And I want to start with what I think is the most famous and most obvious part of this case that, at least in my opinion, Carla, drove a lot of the emotional connection for a lot of people. And that was Scott Peterson's affair. I, I think that for me, when people hear this, there's a big association, we hit on it a little bit in the last episode, between the fact that he was a cheater and a liar, and that means that it, it feels more likely he could have been involved in some foul play around his wife. I think the story that the prosecution would have you believe is that Scott Peterson had become obsessed with Amber Fry. He meets this beautiful blonde woman, and from the interviews I've seen with her, she's articulate, kind of charming, and charismatic, and that someone that was feeling trapped in a longer-lived relationship and was getting ready to have a child as he approached the holidays kind of had this oh-shit moment and thought, maybe I want this life with someone else instead. Some of this is supported by other things that we know about the case, such as Scott Peterson met Amber Fry's child on the second date, that there was a lot of communication back and forth between Amber Fry in a really short amount of time. They only met in early December, and remember Lacey died by the end of the month, right? They're saying that there was this very emotional crescendo that led up to Scott deciding, I no longer want to be with this woman I've been with for the last several years, and I would instead like to be with Amber Fry. And some of this feeling from the public and from authorities is really Scott's own fault. Because in the back and forth between Scott and Amber, Scott pretty blatantly said, I don't have a wife, said nothing of his unborn child, was going places with Amber when she was fully under the impression that Scott was a single man. Not only that, I think the part for me, and I think this was the part that her family said too, is that right, a cheater doesn't make him a murderer. I don't know that any of us necessarily point immediately, oh, he was cheating with Amber Fry. He must have killed Lacey. But the fact that he said, this is my first Christmas without my wife. Like, dude, you either have a real bad karma that you said that and it ended up being, or you had a plan all along. I'm not convinced which one it is. We know people who have had affairs. My bio dad 
I mean, he was a manipulator from Jump Street. He had multiple affairs with many women, and it didn't make him a murderer. In fact, he wasn't abusive. He wasn't violent. He just was a liar. He was a good liar, for whatever that's worth. I think in this case, Scott's not even a good liar. I don't know either that Lacey's family was being entirely honest with themselves or with authorities when they say that his infidelity had nothing to do with their opinion of him. It just seems as though, and I know that this was coupled with his comments about my my wife has just died, so I, I understand where some of this is coming from, but I have a hard time decoupling that with their opinion about him cheating on their daughter. And you talked a little bit in the last episode, Carla, how I mean, you have different thoughts towards your daughter than your son. We have different kind of traditional gender roles that we have here in the States that are deeply ingrained in us. And I think that there is a part of a lot of parents that, especially when they're younger, are more protective of daughters in that way than they are sons, right? So I think that plays into this a little bit. I I think for me, if I'm to look at it from Scott's perspective— because that's Lacey's family's thoughts on on where this was coming from. Like, hey, this man said, my, my wife is dead. I've been cheating on her all this. Scott's point of view, I think, is more, look, I'm a dude. I'm not claiming to be a good guy here. I cheated. I saw a pretty blonde girl. I'm literally about to have a child. Feeling like I'm having this sowing my oats moment. I can liken this in my head, and this is me making a stretch and a leap, so no, this is just purely my opinion, but it almost feels like the bachelor party effect, right? Where when guys go out on their bachelor party, they have this kind of last-ditch moment of irresponsibility where they don't ever talk about what they did on that bachelor party. It almost felt like he was trying to have one last hurrah before he became this father, and that's really gross. That's really douchey if I'm anywhere close to right. In my mind, I just, I'm not convinced it makes him a killer. Yeah, that's a very good point. I think at the end of the day, nothing about the Amber Fry situation points to guilt or innocence. It doesn't look good. It's not a good look. And the things he says, it makes him look really bad. I've said it before too, he's a shitty person. Well, okay, maybe he's not a shitty person because he had a fair, makes him a shitty husband. But like to put out in the ether, this was my first Christmas without my wife, you know, Dude, you are so fucking stupid. Nothing about that situation, though, shows, like, would make me sway to say, yep, he is guilty. One other complicating factor for Amber Fry, for me, is the fact that authorities then used her. Yeah. I have real strong feelings about police entrapment, and this is borderline, if not full-on, police entrapment. I can't imagine being in her position, by the way. This is no commentary on Amber Fry. I think she was a victim of this as well. She was under the impression that the man that she was with was single. And she had to find out in probably one of the hardest ways possible, and that was via media frenzy, that this man that she had been with did have a wife and an unborn child. And that, by the way, they are now missing and potentially dead. That's got to be really overwhelming. What happened after that is that authorities approached her and she decided to comply with that. And we have a series of recordings that Amber Fry helped to facilitate that the prosecution would try to use to pin things on Scott. And that just feels really, really gross. And to Scott's defense, he does come clean in some of those recordings. He does admit, listen, I lied about this stuff. It becomes really, really complicated and for me compromises a little bit of what she had to offer to the case because of how they leveraged her. And 
to be honest, they kind of manipulated her. She was going through some emotional shenanigans as part of this as well, and it feels like authorities really capitalized on that to me. I can only imagine in that situation, literally December 29th or December 30th, whichever it was, that she came forward to the police. The very next day, they make a public statement that they believe that this is foul play. They hadn't said that like in their hearts, like in their guts, they felt within hours that something was not right. But to come out and officially say we feel like it's foul play is because Amber solidified what their gut immediately to them they were like now we have motive for why scott could have killed and and maybe that is the motive right maybe we say because motive doesn't necessarily have to be like true evidence right so maybe amber was the motivation behind whatever happened but you still got to prove it that's right you still have to have evidence that shows could they say that she was motivation sure i think scott's side says Was she the motivation? And especially when you take into consideration that some believe Lacey was aware of some of these affairs. Now, do I think by any stretch of the imagination that Lacey was aware that Scott met Amber Fry's child? Mm. Nah. And I, I think that she would have some major issues with that. That would be way too close in the feelings for me. I have a more open-minded approach to some of this stuff. That would be a, a step too far in my mind. So I don't think that Lacey knew about that. But if I imagine a world where Lacey knew about some affairs, it to your point about motivation, is that really a motivation at the end of the day? I don't know. You decide. I might have thought that she knew about previous affairs. I think when a woman is pregnant and there are so many hormones that are part of that, I have a little bit harder of a time thinking, because when would she have known? This was a new affair. Did she find out the night that she was killed? I mean, brand new, weeks before. Yeah. Seriously. So that part of it, Scott, that's bullshit. I don't believe that Lacey knew about the Amber Fry. Whether or not she knew about other ones, I could get on board with that. But I just don't feel like... She just would not have had enough time, I think, to process, even to the fact that they were seen with her sister the night before. I would feel like I'm going to need a fucking minute away from you. Like, I'm going to need a minute to process whatever that looks like. And I would think, too, that even if you're keeping this secret from your family, you're letting someone know. And and again, it really just goes back to all of the emotions. You're pregnant. And I do think that the expectations, even from a couple that might have a more open-minded approach to this, I think what you said about once you are pregnant, you have a child on the way. Some of the rules, even if you haven't explicitly said it as part of your relationship contract with one another, some of the rules change at that point. They they just do. I'm not able to become pregnant. Thomas isn't either. <laughs> we keep trying. <laughs> if if we were, and I found out that one of us was, like any any thoughts about a more open relationship would shut down in that moment. Like for at least the next year. <laughs> yeah. Can you just keep your shit together? <laughs> Carla's opinion. I don't see that Lacey and Scott had an open relationship. I see two people who, where she just let his grievances go. Like she got over it for whatever that is happening, but I don't see her being okay with an open relationship. The other thing that I'll share on Scott's perspective, so this leans towards Scott's defense, is that the prosecutor really said that like this was the motivation behind it. Like he was looking to get rid of his wife and get rid of his family. 
But Scott and his family will say, and apparently the evidence shows, that actually Amber was the heavier pursuer in the relationship. Scott was not. And that their communication, even within some of the phone calls, and we looked at some of the records before as far as like how many calls, Amber was calling him, I would say like three times to one over how many times Scott was calling her. It does seem that she was more aggressive in that relationship than Scott was. It feels like the prosecution tried to make the point that, in fact, their communications increased once some of this went down, but the defense was able to come out and say, we we have quantitative proof to say that that is, in fact, false. Now, some of it around what you shared about Amber being the heavier lifter there, I think some of that gets complicated when you consider when... When did the police start using her? At what point was she communicating with him more because she was being prompted and coached to do so by but authorities? That wasn't even, that's a good point because that wasn't until December 30th. Yeah. So even before then, like she's calling him a lot more times. Yep. So like some of the phone records, we know that they stopped seeing each other December 14th. That was the last time that they would see each other up and until the trial. There was 26 calls between Amber and Scott. Two-thirds of those were placed by Amber. And most of them are voicemail or like phone tag. And it's only about eight minutes a day. It's kind of averaging. So it's a really low time. And I mean, you know, I've been in new relationships before yeah, where I've been- puppy love, for sure. You're talking like one to two hours a night. And I think it goes to say that, sorry, Michael- most men are simple. Like, he got exactly what he wanted from this relationship. I completely agree with that point. I'm yeah. not offended by it. I'm not. <laughs> he got what he wanted from this re- relationship, in air quotes, and he was good with it. And I I think that if I believed Scott in this situation, he probably would have led her on a little bit more. Maybe, probably never would have seen her again, honestly. I will say again, all cheaters say they're single. Right. So to me, some of this too, that's the other thing that I think miscolors what Amber's perspective on this is. Because her, you're right, two-thirds of the communication. But I think that almost tries to color her as if she was the antagonist here. I think the point that you just made is really sound though, Carla. Scott was just less emotionally involved because I think he was A, in it for sex and he did have someone at home. But when I think about, I feel like I'm more like, Um, the traditional stereotypical girl in the relationship. I get all sorts of butterflies when I'm in a brand new relationship. I'm going to be calling you like 15,000 times a day. All of her behavior seems really innocently aligned with that train of thought. I don't think anything is wrong with the way that she did. She probably felt they connected right away. Her daughter, like all of those things. The last point I want to say there is that it did seem that even though the prosecution would lead you to believe that Scott was pursuing Amber heavier. And I walked away thinking that. He's talking to her on the night of her visual, like of um, one of- Lacey's vigil. Yeah, yeah, one of Lacey's vigil, that he is pursuing her. But it does seem that maybe there's a little bit more pursuing on her side. So that's point number one, Amber Fry. I think it's a complicated point that a lot of this case leaned on. It's the first kind of complex point in this case that is really used as a linchpin of the prosecution's case. I feel like another big component of the prosecution's case was around Scott's boat purchase. 
So a lot of the timeline that the prosecution put forward is dependent on the fact that Scott said that he was going to be going golfing the day that Lacey went missing, that it was cold out, and so he instead decided to go out on a boat. The prosecution would have you believe that this boat was a secret to everyone, including Lacey, that no one knew about this, and that this wasn't necessarily shady for the fact that Scott went out on it, but that it was shady because of the secretive nature of the purchase itself. Scott did pay for it in cash for whatever it's worth. It was something that they used too, like who pays for this kind of thing in cash. Some counterpoints to this is that yes, Scott paid cash for it, but he paid for it out of a joint account that Lacey had access to. So if you're trying to keep that secret from someone, that's not a very good way to keep it secret. I don't know how you feel about that, but it, it doesn't feel like he was trying real hard if that's the case. I will also say that this was a purchase that was only a few weeks old. I can believe a world where a lot of other people didn't know about this, but that doesn't point to any guilt for me. That just points to the fact that, hey, maybe you didn't go and tell a lot of people about this, and that's completely okay. That's your business. Something else I would point out here, this is not some sort of grand yacht of a boat. This is little more than a dinghy. It is a very, very tiny little fishing boat. It's also not their first boat. It felt like the prosecution made such a huge point about this being a big purchase. I mean, yeah, buying a boat of any size, it ain't small, but this is something that they had done before. This, to me, supports even more the idea that this was not a secret to Lacey. Nonetheless, this was a big point of view from the prosecution, not only in his activity being suspicious this day, but because they propose this was part of him trying to hide the body of Lacey and Connor as well, that this is what he used to drive them out into the San Francisco Bay and to dump their bodies. I didn't know that. And I've done a lot of research on this case between the couple of documentaries. I don't remember that coming out, that he owned a lot of boats. And I apparently, like, for all his life, has always had boats that he sold boats back and forth. And I definitely did not know that he purchased the boat, even though it was with cash, but that he had pulled out $1,400 out of their joint checking account. And I'm sure even though I think that they had a little bit of, of money, $1,400 doesn't come out and you don't question Hey, would you pull out $1,400 for? Especially, they're probably being even more particularly mindful of those funds, knowing that they've got another little human on the way with this. I completely agree with you, Carla. Lacey did not miss a $1,400 line item. I'm going to say, this boat is, we call it a dinghy. It's not much bigger than a canoe with a motor on the back <laughs> yes, of it. Yes, Carla. I mean, it is really small. There was that experiment that we watched that maybe we can link that YouTube in our show yeah. notes that I think really illustrates how small this is. A, a man went on there and put a weighted dummy that was about the the size, weight, height of what a Lacey Peterson with a, a baby Connor inside would have been and tried to illustrate how difficult it would have been on a boat this size to not only load her on there, in such a small boat, in broad daylight, in waters that are typically pretty traversed, so would have been the potential of a lot of line of sight to a lot of observers. But as this gentleman was trying to get this weighted dummy out the boat, the boat is so unstable because it's so tiny that it started taking on water and eventually capsized. Now, there's no way of knowing that was just an illustration. Who knows if that would actually happen in real life? 
especially if this is someone that's used to being on boats, maybe he even knew how to counterweight that. I'm just saying it was really compelling visualization to suggest to me maybe this isn't as cut and dry as the prosecution would have me believe. The way that the San Francisco Bay, it's a lot more waves and things like that than you think. Yes, and so here's this it's tiny choppy. Yeah, here's this tiny little boat. You think it's in it's the end of December, so it's cold outside, so I m- imagine even in California that it is choppy out there. Again, it's a tiny boat. We'll post pictures on our socials so that you can see the boat and see for yourselves, but it does that part does seem very suspicious to me that how would he be able to And then not only that, but in broad daylight. Yes. He said that he didn't even go out. I think it was until like later, like 11 early o'clock. After, yeah, right? 11 o'clock. Yeah. There's a lot of people there. I know that they said that there was only a couple of people who had ticketed into that marina. But what I heard later is that actually there's a lot of boats that live there, like houseboats, but it's still a very busy bay, even if it would have been Christmas Eve. So why would you risk dumping an entire body at 11 a.m.? I'm not saying that I think Scott's the smartest person in the world, but is he really that dumb? So what's the first thing that comes to mind when you think of Florida? I'm sure some of you will imagine soaking up the sun on one of our world-renowned beaches or cooling off in one of our refreshing natural springs. While others may imagine dancing all night at one of Miami's famous nightclubs or maybe taking in some thrills and chills at one of our many amusement parks. We may be the vacation capital of the United States, but there's a darker side to Florida, one you may not have heard of. What's up, guys? I'm Joe Torino, and I'm the host of the Greetings from Florida podcast. I'm a history-loving, ghost-hunting, lifelong Florida, and I want you to join me on a journey through the Sunshine State as we explore all the weird history, strange mysteries, legends, and lore that Florida has to offer. So if you think you're ready to take a walk on the weird side, then listen to Greetings from Florida with Joe Torino wherever you get your podcasts. It's a fantastic point. I just, this to me does not say to me that Scott is completely innocent, by the way, even if we disprove some of these pieces about the boat, because I, again, that illustration, that YouTube video was super compelling to me. It automatically made me think this was not plausible. It doesn't mean that he didn't do it. So I'll just throw that in there. It just means that he didn't necessarily leverage the boat in the way that the prosecution played it out, that he used it. All right. So we hit on Amber Fry. We've hit on the boat. I think the next piece that is compelling to me is the possibility that there was a break-in right across the street in the Peterson's neighborhood on the day that Lacey supposedly went missing. So if you were to believe Scott Peterson's side, the defense on this argument, they would say that there was a break-in literally within eyeshot of the Peterson's house, like you could see it right across the street, on the 24th, Christmas Eve, when Lacey, if you follow their timeline, would have disappeared. The prosecution dug into that with authorities and later completely dismissed it, almost blithely, just kind of like, meh, no, that's not what happened at all. In fact, that happened on the 26th and is not related whatsoever what to what happened here. Although I'm telling you, I'm calling bullshit even on that point before we go to the next piece about this right off the fly. You're telling me that a crime that happened in the exact same neighborhood where someone disappeared literally across the street just because it was the day two days after instead of the day of 
that that's not somehow connected. If I'm doing decent police work, I'm trying to put myself in their position, any crime that has happened within a couple of days on either side of that particular event so close in proximity, I'm going to consider suspicious. It just feels really weird that they were just like, no, because it happened on the 26th, mm, couldn't have been that. Don't you think the police would have been in the neighborhood? Like, were people out searching for Lacey? Thank you. This was kind of a big deal, Carla. <laughs> you know what? Again, dumb criminals love them, right? <laughs> That's right. So, like, hey, Michael. Your neighbor across the street, she's gone missing. She's a pregnant woman. The whole fucking world is looking for her. Let's go rob the house across the street from it with the police and reporters there and everything. Like, no way did they do that. And what's funny, the criminal is like, immediately, he's like, hey, I didn't have nothing to do with that pregnant person. And they're like, yeah, we believe the criminal. <laughs> I mean, I get it. Scott was kind of sh shady, right? So... I mean, I get it. And as but, we went to the last episode, also. yeah, authorities had this impression of him that was not good. They thought he was kind of arrogant. They thought he was very aloof. All of that. I get it. But you're trusting the criminal that was trying to rob some families around Christmas? And I have said before that, like, these are very seasoned investigators. Yes. These, these, this is not one crime in the whole year, you know, Boulder, Colorado investigators. Yeah, these yeah. are very seasoned investigators. And for the most part... They have done pretty good investigation. Completely fair. Yes. But this is a miss. Well, it just felt like a reach. And it's made so even worse by the reporters. You started making this point. As soon as this became national news, there was instant media frenzy around this. And the Peterson's home, to your point from a minute ago, was surrounded by reporters for months afterward. I mean, they were right there. You're trying to tell me that starting on the 25th, reporters are surrounding it, that somehow crime happened across the street when there's a cameraman sitting right there holding the microphone? It, Carla, it doesn't make sense to me. Because it doesn't make sense. What was the one reporter that like even... Ted Rowlands, he was a reporter from KTVU. So he stated, like, I was in front of the house at 5 a.m. on December 26th, and there was absolutely no break-in that occurred at that time. He said the police said the burglary took place on December 26th, not December 24th. The problem that he has with this is he was standing outside that house at 5 in the morning on December 26th. And if there were burglars there, I would have interviewed them because nobody was outside of that house. And not only that, but there's a neighbor that, like, she swears by it. The neighbor, Diane Jackson, she says she saw three men outside the home at 6.30 a.m. She didn't put it together until after Christmas when she finds out, oh, the Medina's house was broken into. And then she starts piecing it together, like, oh, my gosh, I saw men outside her house. She called the police immediately, was like, hey, I seen them on December 24th. And they're like, no, 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 it was December 26th. You were mistaken, man. Yeah, and this reporter is like, no, I was out there on December 26th. There's even a recording of me out here on December 26th. Now, maybe not at 5 a.m., but he's like, I started this at 5 a.m., and again, December 26th, it wasn't just him out there. Like, it was a lot of them. But again, the other thing is, starting December 24th, when Scott reported her missing, people were, were looking everywhere for her. That's right. So you don't think that even her parents or anybody else in both of the families, friends, people who are probably standing vigil at this house, at Scott Peterson's Looking house, for suspicious activity, Carla. Exactly. 
are not seeing a house get burglarized. I just, I don't know. That's a far fetch for me. That leads me to my next point, Carla. This whole point around not only the reporters and the cameras, the microphones, everything that would have been staring right at some of these houses right across the street, the family waiting for the other shoe to drop. The The fact is there were multiple eyewitness sightings of Lacey Peterson with their dog, Mackenzie, Scott and Lacey's dog, Mackenzie, after the prosecution would have you believe that Lacey had already gone missing. Now, I find this significant for a couple of reasons, because it wasn't just a single neighbor that reported this. There was, was multiple eyewitnesses from the neighborhood. Number two, Lacey is 30-some weeks pregnant at this point. She is very obviously pregnant. This does not look like just any shorter brunette woman walking down the street with a really nondescript golden retriever. This was a, a very, very pregnant lady. Her and Scott were well-known in the community. Th these neighbors were like, no, that was Lacey Peterson and their dog. So the dog was almost more famous than the Petersons were in the neighborhood, had a really odd name for a, a male dog, McKinsey, and this was a gift from Lacey to Scott earlier on in their relationship. And all the neighbors recognized this dog. So they are saying, not only are we sure that we saw this very pregnant lady, but we're very sure that we saw her with this specific dog around the normal time that she would be walking this dog. I think the counterpoint to this would be that eyewitness testimony is infamously and notoriously inaccurate. Our brains like to fill in gaps. When we see something that doesn't quite make sense, someone that could have been a heavier set woman that's walking Labrador all of a sudden looks like Lacey Peterson walking a golden retriever. This is the one that I probably have the least opinion on because it's so circumstantial, it's so subjective, but it still feels significant. I don't know what to do with the fact that multiple people witnessed this and were willing to say that to authorities. If it was just one person, I could dismiss it more readily, but that just starts to feel a little icky to me that multiple people say they saw her. His family will say like within a, a one mile radius of Lacey and Scott's house, there was like 24 sightings was reported. I mean, that's just huge. Yeah, and within a three-mile radius, it was an additional seven. So it's a total of 31. And we'll post the visual of this map online because I think it's compelling and just kind of puts forward the point. If you're one of those people that's like, eyewitness testimony is bullshit, cool. One or two eyewitness testimonies is 30? Yeah, 30 is a lot. And of course, the police say that they investigated everyone. I just can't imagine that you could. But I think to your point again, she's dark haired. She's very pregnant. It's a dog that she walks all the time. Specific times on specific routes. Yeah, probably neighbors who seen them all the time. I feel like the people who are in their closest within the block or so they're probably going to be pretty accurate on whether or not they saw Lacey. Like maybe they didn't see her at the right time. But I do think that you have to put some credibility behind when you have this many people saying that, hey, we're pretty sure that we've seen her alive. Even if nothing else, it does something to your timeline. If your timeline is somewhere in the night of the 23rd, early morning 24th, Scott killed Lacey. Yep. And she, he never left that house and, she, you know, she was alive. I think it has to do something to your timeline that you're going to have to dig around and figure out, like, what else could have happened. It just feels like they were so ready to dismiss it. And some of this could be because it was so circumstantial. They know even more than you and I do that so much of that 
is just absolute bullshit. So many eyewitness testimonies, when you put them under any kind of scrutiny, start to fall apart. So you all listeners decide, does this matter to this case? I think the next big point for me is around Scott's odd behavior. So we, we mentioned in the last episode that some of this could just be down to personal opinion of Scott. He's had a very charmed life. He grew up in a well-to-do family. We talked about how they helped them put a down payment on this home. That's how, as a younger couple, they were able to afford it. Scott was very good looking, was very, very charming. But I think for some people that maybe didn't grow up with that same level of benefit can feel a certain way about it. And it left police with this impression that Scott was just very dismissive, aloof, kind of arrogant. And so I'm wondering if that played into this, but some of his behavior really was kind of strange and sketchy up to and including, this is the point that really gets me, Carla, trying to sell their house and all their furniture so soon after Lacey disappeared. Now, if you're to believe Scott's side of this, he was trying to move on. He had just been through this horrible trauma I think this was, what, a month after her mm -hmm. disappearance? So in his mind, the odds are she's gone. Whether murdered or whether she left, like, she's gone. And he, I think that's part of his argument. The other part that he explicitly said is that she wouldn't want to come back to this. She wouldn't want to come back to, to this home with all of that. And yes, if you could see Carlo's face right now with the slow blink, that's exactly how I feel about it. Maybe from Scott's perspective, this is a viable argument. And if I lean more into the idea of this was a place that now holds forever traumatic memories that I'm forever going to have to associate with my missing wife, with endless reporters, with being mobbed as soon as I come home, I can get on board with that a little bit. But if I'm Lacey's family... I'm sitting there thinking, what the fuck? First of all, if my husband moves on within 30 days. <laughs> <laughs> Same, Carla. <laughs> I want you to know that I'm coming back with everything that I have. Like, it doesn't make sense to me. Like, I put it, if one of my family members disappeared and their spouse was trying to sell their house with all of their belongings in it, like my family members' belongings in that house. Yeah. I would – I don't even know that anyone can explain really – and I don't think there has – I have not seen – There's in, not a good explanation. Th no, there's not a good explanation. He sold her Range Rover. Like, I just – I can't get over it. And so that's the part is – and I would just be so fucking pissed. Like, maybe, maybe I'm just missing – and I come, I get recovered somehow and like I come back and you have sold our house and sold my car. I'm going to sell you next. The only possible argument besides the movie on no. thing, I'm, I, I'm telling you, it comes <laughs> down to how tainted everything is at this point. If I can see any argument for Scott, that's the only one that stands any water. That's the only place that I can go is I just want to get rid of everything. I don't want to have it. to deal with any of this. I don't want to continue to come home every night. And I'm surrounded by our life and things like that, right? Like in this moment of grief, that's the only thing that I can get on. And I feel like you leave then. You leave. Why? You don't have to come home to that house every night. Go somewhere else. Go to your family's house. Go rent a house. Go rent a hotel room. Like do whatever. You do not have to be there every night if it's too much for you. But don't sell your house. I don't know. It That was just such a weird thing. Which leads to... The final point that we're going to hit on tonight, which was around some of the other physical and circumstantial evidence that they're looking at. 
if you're to believe the prosecution side, one of the motivations of potentially selling one's home is, hey, we've already found these things that could potentially connect you to this crime. If we go through your home again and we put everything under even more of a microscope, what else are we going to find? So if I'm to believe the prosecution side, there was some motivation for Scott to get rid of that home. And some of the things in question here are interesting. Some of it had nothing to do with his home, by the way, but some of it did. So some of the things in the home were Lacey's hair in Scott Pliers in his toolkit. If you're to believe the prosecution side that Lacey's body was hidden in a toolbox and that might have been part of how her hair ended up in those pliers. I think the counterpoint to that particular piece of evidence, I would say that it would be really, really weird to not find some of Thomas's hair or skin cells or whatever on just about everything that we own. That feels really, really common. In fact, if we're investigating this kind of crime and you were to not find some of Thomas's hair, that would be suspicious to me because then that starts to look like a bit of a cleanup from that perspective. But there were also some internet searches that did not make Scott look particularly good in this case. There was some concrete residue in his boat, and the boat obviously sometimes visited the house, um, so that could be connected. The seller of that boat said that concrete residue was not there when he sold the boat. Scott admitted that he did make concrete anchors that he used to anchor his boat or intended to use to anchor his boat when he went fishing. There is a little bit of plausibility there, but still potentially connected to the house. Lastly, there was some blood in Scott's truck that I think the prosecution was trying to insinuate was Lacey's, but come to find out when they did further testing, it was in fact Scott's. And by nature of his job, also by nature of being a fisherman and a golfer, Scott basically tried to say, listen, I've bled on my truck on multiple occasions throughout the time that I've owned it. Why is that really that weird? I think any of these things individually don't seem that compelling, but when you start to layer them one on top of the other, the weird concrete residue, the blood in his truck, Lacey's hair in the pliers, in the tool chest that they think was used to potentially transport her body, and some of these internet searches on top of him trying to sell the house. And these internet searches came into question because Scott was specifically searching for some boat launches in the marina that he would later reportedly drive the boat out onto in the San Francisco Bay and dump Lacey and Connor's body. This has to go along with the point that the prosecution tried to push that the boat purchase was entirely secret, that it was kept even from Lacey, and that perhaps even the boat purchase was made with the explicit intention of disposing of the body. I feel like here they're trying to push the idea that this was not only a crime of passion, but that it was in fact premeditated. Further internet searches that I don't think did him any favors were around renting pornography soon after Lacey was gone. So I don't know that I feel any certain way about the pornography, but... Yeah, I think it, you know, it all kind of goes back that like some of the evidence is very circumstantial. Like one of the only pieces of like true forensic evidence is the single hair and everything else maybe adds to it, but I don't know that it tells the full puzzle. There's probably some parts of, of most of us, myself including, that there's like some gut 
that's telling us like he did this or he didn't do it. And the evidence doesn't quite tell us or prove that he did do it. it. It's just hard for me. All of these things individually don't add up to much. I do get the prosecution's perspective of when you stack them side by side by side by side. It's like what you said earlier about him claiming that his wife died to Amber Fry, that this was his first Christmas without her. You are either the unluckiest fuck in the world or you're dumb and just made some sort of flippant comment. You know what I mean? Like, but it Or just, you killed your wife. Or you, oh yeah, <laughs> or that. That's really the point that I meant to make. <laughs> or you killed your wife. I don't know. It does feel weird, but none of it feels weird individually. And even combined, it still feels a little circumstantial and a little subjective. Is it capital T true? I think, you know, we looked at the John Bonet case, right? And there's a lot of people that will still go back and be like, look, all of it was very circumstantial, but like the ransom note, right? Like the ransom note. And I think at the end of the day, they weren't prosecuted because they didn't have enough. They couldn't prove that they, they did it. They could not prove it, that they did it. And then they had DNA that said they didn't do it. In this case, we have even less than that. We don't even have DNA. And we have a system in the United States, and we can have a whole conversation about whether or not you agree with this system. And there yeah. are other democracies that put the burden of proof on the other side of it. But here in the United States, you are assumed innocent until you are proven guilty. And that means that the burden of proof is on the prosecution to tell a compelling story that makes it worth taking away someone's rights and freedoms in this space. In most cases like this, as we discussed last week, it is the spouse. It is someone super close to you. You still have to fucking prove it. Even down to the pliers thing, Carla. If you imagine that that was more than just circumstantial evidence, if you're saying that they're somehow connected, how? Is there any proof on Lacey's body that pliers were used in any way? In the boat? In the truck? What is connecting a very common household tool? I've got three sets of pliers out there in the garage, and I promise you I'm not the most macho man on the planet. What is connecting that piece of really common evidence to this crime? I don't know that they convinced me that it is. I just hope that if a jury of my peers convict me and sentence me to death, that they have more than one hair. One hair. But at the end of the day, this case is very, very complex. And in some ways, even more unsettling than some around children that we've covered especially given the nature in which Lacey's and Connor's bodies were eventually found. It just is very, very tragic. And this is something that is potentially up for a new trial, right? We mentioned the yeah. last episode, you might be hearing more in ways of updates here in the next coming couple of months around this December case. December 15th. That's, they they just, have until, okay. yeah, the judge has until then to say if there's going to be a whole new trial. Given what we got, I don't know that they'll convict him. Even if my gut says... There's a lot of coincidences. Like, this is a lot of coincidences. Her body was found in the same marina that you went out on your boat with on the day that your wife goes missing. And had previously searched for on the internet a couple of weeks prior. Right. By the way, only a week after you met Amber Fry. Right. Your most recent affair becomes public knowledge for the whole world. And you said that really disgusting thing. So, like... How do you walk that back? That's just such a big coincidence. I convinced myself, and I've said this a few times, I said it about John Benet Ramsey and her family. There's not this history of abuse. 
But there doesn't always need to be history of abuse. If we think about like Chris Watts, right? He had no history of abuse. In fact, people would say he was a very agreeable person. They would even tell you that it was his wife that like wore the pants in the relationship. And yet he not only murdered his wife, he murdered his two children. So that doesn't necessarily mean just because Scott hadn't been abusive to Lacey that he didn't do it. It's, It's again, like everything that I could have to think that Scott is guilty is in my gut and none of it could I prove. So still by a court of law, even if Carla at the end of the day, 60-40, believes that he's guilty, I still couldn't convict him for it. And I definitely couldn't put the death penalty on him, even if I wanted to. I think that's one of the things that is most fascinating to me about true crime, because there's how we feel about it. Right. And I think you made that distinction really, really well. Like, I, I have this feeling in my gut. I do too. I don't think Scott Peterson is a good guy. Do I think that he should rot in prison forever? I'd then have to say that all the men, all the women too, because cheating is not an explicitly men's sport, that have ever cheated and been manipulative and have lied, are are we convicting them to prison for the rest of their lives too? Are we putting them to death? I think we all intuitively know the answer here. So how do we separate our gut feeling from the actual cold, hard facts? And Carla, I guess we may be getting a new trial here soon to help us figure that out. Yeah, so tell us what you think. You what guys, do you think? Well, you guys have heard our unsolicited feedback, and we we didn't fight as much as I thought we might. No. Because at the end of the day, I really struggled to try to find, okay, like what evidence do they have? It's not a lot. It is a lot of circumstances. What do you guys think? We have tried to lay it out. We've talked about, you know, why they think he did it and why he says he didn't do it. Did we change your mind? Did you think about something else? Let us know. But until then, bitches, and until the next case rolls out. Bye. Bye. Hey, you made it to the end of the podcast. Thanks so much for hanging out with us. And I know that we've given a lot of our unsolicited feedback, but at the end of the day, it's also important that we remember to stay kind. Stay curious. But of course, stay nosy. Bitches. Bitches. Thank you.